0: images, huh? How many of you remember where you were when 9-11 occurred? Uh, People tell us that study these things that 97% of Americans who are adults remember that day and remember exactly where they were when they heard the news or watched the images. It is the most impactful event that has happened in our generation, without a doubt. And so, you know, some of you may think that was just 10 years ago, seems like yesterday in so many ways. Now, there's a lot of slices that we can take with 9-11. A lot of things happened. But one of the things that it reminded us about was about those people in our country who protect us. The policemen, the firemen, the first responders, the military, people who we usually take for granted, or maybe even feel a little pushed off by, that day they rose to the occasion. And I just thought it would be very cool for us as a church family to thank those people and recognize them. so, if you have been or are a policeman, a fireman, in the medical profession, uh, if you're in the military or have been, I just ask you to stand right now. Keep standing. Keep standing. I just want to pray for you real quick. If you just continue to stand, that would be great. Let me pray for you. Lord, we thank you for these people. And there is something that you put inside of them uh, where they desired to have a profession that didn't pay well, didn't get a lot of notoriety, and in fact, in some cases, just the opposite. And yet, uh, they have a desire to protect us. They have a desire to maintain order to jump in when things are chaotic or dangerous. We saw that so clearly on 9-11. And we thank you for these people here, these people that are part of our community that have stepped up like that. We pray blessings in their life. And we thank you that they're a part of our family. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, you guys. All right, as I said, you know, there's really a lot of slices. Uh, Some of the greatest virtues that our country has ever seen occurred on 9-11. Some of the courage that we saw, some of the unity that we saw, some of the perspective that was gained during that time. I mean, it really is amazing, just amazing stories. And, of course, there's amazing tragedy that happened that day. And you hear some of the stories, or you remember some of the images, and you're just like, "Oh my gosh, it was our darkest, darkest hour as a country." Uh, it, it established really a whole new attitude that most of us had toward the Middle East and Muslims, and you know what, what's that religion about, and, and why would they do this to us, and you know all those kinds of things. It brought up a new phrase that now is So much a part of us, we don't think anything about it. We've never heard it before, though, the war on terror. And so our country has changed dramatically from what happened 10 years ago today. But here's what I want to talk about. There's also a spiritual dimension to what happened 10 years ago. And I don't know much about those other things, but I do know some things about spiritual things. And so I want us to talk about that. What did 9-11 do for our image of God, for what we think of uh, when we think of God, what we think of when we think of his protection or the order that he is, you know, supposedly uh, able to create. You know, what happens when a crisis hits? Where is God in that? What's our response? What's the right thing? So that's what I want us to look at. And if you have your Bibles and you could turn to Psalm 46, we're going to start there, Psalm 46, that would be great. But one of the things that I remember, and maybe if you were going to church 10 years ago, you'll remember it. Do you remember what happened to the crowds, to to our attendance at church? What happened the day after 9-11? Huge crowds, maybe the most attended week of church, like in decades. Uh, People just flooded in. And it seems they were coming to say, listen, we now realize we need help. We realize we need perspective. We need to connect with a God that might make sense of these things or might jump in and give us comfort in a time where we are just feeling so lost and so wounded. And so people flooded, flooded to church. And I remember some of the things that people were saying, you know, we'll never be the same. We're going to change. We're going to change as a country. We're going to become more patriotic, and we're going to become more loving, and we're going to take care of the people that are needy. And there was sort of all this sentiment that was sort of wrapped around 9-11, if you remember. I remember that well. And uh, one of the Psalms, Psalm 46, was a Psalm that was read a lot that week. And in fact, at Mariner's Church here, uh, it was read that week. Kenton was just telling me. I wasn't here, but Kenton said, we read this Psalm. And the Psalm reminds us of who God is. And I'm going to kind of skip through it. But if you look down, you'll sort of see me going through verses 1 through 7. But it says this. God is our refuge and strength an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, nations are in uproar, kingdoms full. Uh, He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And the reason that we read that psalm is because it just reminds us of who God is. And that God is bigger than even the worst catastrophe, the worst thing that you can imagine. Whether it's personal, or in this case it was national for most of us, it was only national. It just reminds us that God is bigger than that. That he cares for us. That he is there. That he is still sovereign. That he still controls things. It may not seem that way in the short term, but... As we peel back, as we look, we see God is in control. God does give strength. He does give wisdom. He gives guidance, even in the hardest of times. And uh, a really interesting thing happened then, if you were in church 10 years ago, after the two weeks of huge attendance, what happened? It went back to normal. I think that a lot of people sort of got their little God shot and they said, you know, that was kind of a hard time, but God helped me through it. And now I'm ready to, to carry on. I'm ready to go on. And people, all those people that had come to church, most of those people left church again. And uh, it's interesting, even when we look at the impact that 9-11 had and these, these things of being more patriotic and more caring and a better community. Uh, again, people that study these things tell us now that less people vote today than voted 10 years ago. Uh, There's less volunteerism today than there was 10 years ago. Giving to charities is less today than it was 10 years ago. Uh, Helping the needy is less today than it was 10 years ago. And so these things that we thought, this will change us forever, we will never be the same, Uh, we, we kind of are. We kind of are. Maybe not even as good as we were before. I mean... The thing that's interesting, and here's, what I want, here's the point that I want to make, is when a crisis hits, when something sort of knocks us off balance, it is a natural human tendency to say, hey, I need help, I need perspective, I need strength. And very often our eyes turn to heaven and we say, God, you must help me, you must, I can't do this on my own. That is, it's human nature. Uh, even uh, the, the greatest cynics or, or maybe the most avid you know, agnostics We'll look to heaven when things are tough, because where else could you look? But just as that's human nature, it's human nature that once we get back up on our feet, it's sort of as we took a knee. You, you might see occasionally, you know, if you're watching a boxing match and, and some guy really gets his bell rung, he'll go down onto one knee. And he's not, he's not out for the count. He's just, you know what? I'm a little stunned. I'm a little staggered. Give me a minute. You know, uh, maybe I can get back to my corner. Just, you know, give me a little bit of time, and I can regroup, and I'll be back better than ever. And I think for a lot of people, uh, when 9-11 hit, that was sort of the attitude is, you know what? We do need some help. We're down on a knee, but we'll bounce back. We're okay. We can do this. And the question is, is that really what God is here for? is to make sure that when crises hit, when things really get bad, that he's going to come in and he'll sort of be like you know, the corner that works a boxer and say, hey, listen, you know, let, us give you some, let me give you some water, let me sort of you know, tend to your cuts, let me get you back, let me give you a little bit of encouragement, and you'll be able to, to carry on. You'll be able to just take on exactly what you were taking on before. And that's not what God has in mind. In fact, the most important words of Psalm 46 we've not read yet, but we so quickly miss them. Yes, it's true. God is a God of comfort. And it is true that God comes in and he does help us. So turning to him is a great thing. But here's the most important phrase in Psalm 46. It comes in verse 10. And this is what it says. And maybe you can read it with me. It says, Be still, and know that I am God. Let's read that one one more time. Be still, and know that I am God. And then it goes on to say, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. We don't tend to think that way when a crisis hits. We don't tend to think in terms of slowing down And seeing God for all that he is, and saying, that is God. Because, and I do this, I totally do this. This is not a finger-pointing message at all. I am, I'm convicted that I do it. In fact, I do it without even knowing it. When a crisis hits and I go into survival mode, I tend to be more self-absorbed than even normal. And I'm pretty self-absorbed. Yeah, I can, I'm can. i as self-absorbed as anyone that I know. Uh, but when a crisis hits, when something really hard hits me, I'm even more self-absorbed. I'm even more about me. I'm more about the weight of my circumstances and my agenda and trying to get back onto track. And we as people do that a lot. And when a crisis hits, we may pull on God for help. But this idea of being still and knowing, knowing, That God is God. That is the farthest thing from our mind. We don't think that way. And yet, here's the point. Here's the point. God's going to come and tell us, if you don't go there, then I can't truly, ultimately help you in a crisis. And I want to look at a character in the Bible. We're going to go through this fairly quickly, but it's a famous character. Uh, some of you that go to church will recognize the name. For some of you, this may be a new guy. His name's Isaiah, and his story, uh, part of his story, is told in Isaiah chapter 6. So again, if you've got your Bibles, just flip over a couple of books to Isaiah from the Psalms, Isaiah chapter 6, and we want to look at something really interesting that happened to Isaiah when a crisis hit his life. Now, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, it begins by saying, in the year that King Uzziah died. And uh, some people just think, well, that's just a little detail to get into the story. It's actually a very important detail in this story because King Uzziah had been the king of Israel for 50 years. He had been one of the best kings that Israel had ever had. His reign was a reign of prosperity, of military advances, of um, you know, growth in the city, of economic stability, And uh, so people were fond, and most people alive in Israel at the time, they had only known King Uzziah as the king. For 50 years, he had been the king. And then Uzziah died. And in that culture, in that day, this is not like when a president changes to another president in our country, and we might be a little bummed or happy depending on what we think, but kind of life goes on as normal. Not in that culture. When a king changed, everything changed. Everybody became nervous because a new king coming in had absolute control to do whatever he wanted. And so if the king was a tyrant or the king was evil, the whole nation would suffer. And immediately, people that were the closest to the old king going out, their lives were threatened. It was more not like the United States. It's more like what we're seeing in Libya with Gaddafi going out, and you just see the turmoil in that country, and everybody worried about what's next, what's next. Gaddafi wasn't great, but what's next? And that was the attitude that everyone in Israel had as Uzziah went out. And we're told that when he went out and this new king came in, that all of a sudden a new powerful nation, Assyria, was starting to threaten uh, Israel, they were starting to feel pressure that there might be an invading power. And we also find out that the worst king in Israel's history, a king by the name of Manasseh, came into power. And so people, for good reason, felt as if this was a national crisis. This is a crisis. Everybody was afraid of what was going to happen. For Isaiah, it was a personal crisis because Isaiah was the son of a man who was the brother to the king. Jewish tradition tells us that he was in the royal court, that he was one of the elites, that he was a personal friend of Uzziah. And now that was going to change. And just as everybody that was in the royal court, everybody that uh, was close to the old king, all of them were threatened at this point. We learn about Isaiah, that he was uh, considered a genius in the court at the time. Uh, he had golden lips. Uh, he sort of had a nickname, the prophet with golden lips. And in an oral tradition, the ability to speak well was a huge ability. And this was Isaiah. Isaiah was the prophet with golden lips. But with Manasseh coming in, and we find out actually it was true, there was going to be huge trouble and huge problems for Isaiah. So Isaiah has all of these things coursing through his mind. And as we open the story, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah is coming up to the temple. And this is such an interesting story, and it's kind of a funny, humorous thing, ironic maybe for us, is Isaiah probably had a lot of things on his mind as he was going to the temple, and maybe he was even praying about these situations, you know, God, give me strength, give me help, you know, Psalm 46, all over the place, please, please, please. And so he's coming in, and there was probably a lot of things he expected to have happen that day at church, in the temple, and what happened, he probably never expected, which was he was going to meet God. And isn't that sort of an irony? Isaiah expected a lot of things, but he didn't expect to meet God in church. And in fact, for some of us, that might be the last thing you expect. You came, you know, you thought, I want the Starbucks card, or, you know, my family dragged me here, or, you know, after we're here, we'll go to the beach, or whatever. The last thing you're expecting is to meet God. And that's what happened to Isaiah. So let's read uh, what goes on here with Isaiah. It says in verse 4, or verse 1, rather, he says... I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Uh, at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook And the temple was filled with smoke. And so you get this amazing experience that Isaiah has as he goes to church that day. I mean, just unbelievable. God shows up in his glory, and it knocks Isaiah down. I mean, it is so much not what he's expecting to happen that day. There's all kinds of confusion. There's all kinds of earthquakes and smoke flying all over the place, and angels are zipping here and there, and he's hearing people calling out, holy, holy, holy. It was a chaotic situation. It was something that was completely overwhelming to Isaiah, and they're saying these words, holy, holy, holy. Holiness is basically a virtue of God that tells us that he is set apart, that while uh, there's parts of God that we can understand and that we can relate to and even emulate in some ways, there are parts of God that are wholly different, totally different. And his holiness tells us, reminds us of this, that you know, while we want to say, you know, God is my best friend, and that's okay, but he is more than your best friend. There is something otherworldly about God, something that we cannot comprehend, and holy is the way that we say that. He is set apart. He is pure. Uh, A word that we sometimes use uh, just when we're describing something is that he's perfect. And when we say that he's holy, 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 in in Hebrew language, there was no punctuation. You couldn't put an exclamation point behind holy or or ten of them to really say, he's holy, with all these exclamation points. You know how they did it? They'd repeat the word. Very rarely in the Bible is a word repeated three times. And here it is. Because Isaiah was so overwhelmed and God so much wanted Isaiah to get. I'm not just like you. Holy, holy, holy. You are perfectly perfect perfection is the word that comes. I am perfect in every way. And so Isaiah pulls back, and then another thing is said. It says the whole world is filled with his glory. We just sang a song that said that. The whole world is filled with his glory. Glory, the word glory in Hebrew is kabod. Uh, Why don't we say kabod together, and you'll get your Hebrew word out for the day. Okay, one, two, three,
1: kabod. All
0: right, you didn't say it really with a lot of passion, so we want to try that a little bit harder. Prepare your throats, (sighs) Because it's actually like, ha, ha That's how they say it, okay? So we want to say that, and then you're going to wipe off the, your neighbor's head in front of you, and everything will be good. Okay, on three. One, two, three. Kabod. Okay, so the whole world is filled with kabod. You know what kabod means? It means weight. It means weight. And the idea here is that God is saying, I am heavy. I am heavy. And by that, what he means is I am real, Uh, I am true, there is no imagery in me, I'm substantial, I'm important, I am the greatest dose of reality that you will ever get. I am more real than anything else around. And to emphasize the point, the whole temple, the temple was the largest building in all of Israel. It was gigantic. It was filled with gold. It was very, very heavy in its own right. And God shows up, and the whole temple shakes. And it's like, you think you're heavy? You think the temple's heavy? Nothing compared to me. And here again is Isaiah, and the whole temple shakes. And God says, the heavy one is here. The one who is the most real is here. It is an amazing thing because, again, what happens to us, we in general, and I'll just say I in general, consider myself the most important person in the world. At least I operate that way. I operate like I'm the most important person. What I think is the most important, my agenda is the most important, what other people do, I am only concerned about what they do as compared to how important is this to me. And, you know, a little confession time, that's the way it is with me. And that's the way it is with you, because that's human nature. We just think that way. We give ourselves a lot of weight. And when circumstances go wrong, we even give ourselves more weight because something's got to be done. Something's got to be fixed. And so often we run to God and we say, God, you have got to fix this problem for me. Now, there's a side of that that is precious and dear, and he's our heavenly father. And just like any child that would come to a parent and say, Daddy, help me. He loves to jump in and help, but there's another huge danger, and that is that we start to see God as our assistant. He is here to make my life run smoothly. God, you didn't know you had a job description, but let me give it to you. It's here to make sure that Kevin gets the things that he wants, that my suffering is minimized that things come together in my life, that you give me the doses of comfort that I need. when I, That's your job, God. Glad to give you a job description. I won't even charge it. That's what you do. You help me have the life I want to have. And here what God is doing is he's saying, Isaiah, before we go on, we need to right-size things. You need to see me for who I am, and in comparison, we'll look at you for who you are. And so God right-sizes himself. Now, let me, here's the thing. We, we, are, we weren't at the temple that day, and so it's a little bit hard for us to get maybe the emotion of the moment. And so I want to try to give you some of the emotion. I want to help you see if you ever have any thoughts like I do that I'm kind of the center of the universe, that my weight is the most important weight. If that ever crosses your mind, uh, let me have you consider this. All right. So that day, there was this huge thing going on in Israel. Isaiah has these things that are happening. It's weighty to him. What's happening in Israel is weighty to to the people of Israel. What's happening in the world is weighty to the people in the world and so forth. Now, let's peel back and say now everything that's happened in history up to the time of Isaiah, let's just put all the weight of that into the mix. And then just to, to, to balance ourselves out, we'll put all the weight of everything that's happened since Isaiah and that day in the temple, everything that happened in that time, we're going to throw all that weight on. I mean, all the substantial things that have happened through history, all the people that have lived, all the, you know, all the people that fell in love, and all the people that fell in hate, and all the kinds of things, all the wars, and all the people that stressed over things, and all the things. You think about all the things that have happened on this Earth since the time the Earth was formed. Let's just put all of that on one side of the scale. And I want to show you what you get. Okay? let's bring up a picture. All right, how do you like that picture? Do you see anything in that picture? Tell me what you see, if you see anything. You see what? Rays of light. Anything else? You see a speck. Great. Let's go to the next slide. There is a speck. It's a pale blue dot. Do you know what that pale blue dot is? It's Earth. It was taken by the Voyager satellite as it was going out of our solar system, about 4 billion miles away, and they were just spraying pictures, and they realized that they caught a picture of Earth from the farthest distance that it's ever been seen, at the end of our solar system. Now, let me just talk to you about our solar system. Our solar system is one one of a 100 billion solar systems or stars in our galaxy. Our galaxy is named the Milky Way. The Milky Way galaxy is one of, they estimate, between 500 billion or more galaxies in the universe. I was just reading an article uh, this week. Cosmologists now believe, uh, new, new thought, but almost all cosmologists, scientists that study astronomy and cosmology, believe that there is more than one universe. Our universe is 90 billion light years across. They think there are other universes that are outside of that. In fact, they say there may be uh, billions and billions of universes. The Bible tells us that God holds together all of the universes with a word with his pinky. Does that sound like the person that you say, will you be my assistant? (laughs) How about making my life run smoothly? I mean, is there anything more important you could be doing than that? And you see, here's the point, is God comes to Isaiah and he says, Isaiah, I know that you're focused and worried and just transformed about your circumstances. But the reality is, if I'm going to help you, you need to see me for who I am. And I am so much larger than that. And my job is not to assist you, Isaiah. Your job is to assist me. And as you do that, as you do that, you will find exactly what you need as you go through this crisis. And we read that Isaiah's response uh, basically, is to fall down on both knees. He says, woe to me, I'm a man undone. And that phrase actually means, uh, it, it's, a very, it's as strong as he could have said, cursed am I. Uh, another definition of woe is, I am disintegrating. I am disintegrating before you, God. You are so magnificent, and when I compare myself with you, there is such no comparison that I feel like I'm disappearing. I just disappear. And we see Isaiah doing this amazing thing of falling and totally humbling himself before God and saying, God, I thought it was all about me. It's not about me. It's about you. And now I'm reminded that it's about you. And he says, I'm a man of unclean lips, which is such an irony because Isaiah, what was the one thing that he was proud of? His lips. His lips. He was the man that could talk, the man with golden lips, and he says, my lips are unclean. I've been using my lips to escalate me, to elevate myself, to exalt myself. Now I realize how unclean they are. They should be doing one thing. My job is to make you look great, is to bring weight to God. And it's such a great scene, because after this little come-to-Jesus moment that Isaiah has where he realizes who he is, God, rather than stomping on him or continuing to push him down, it says that a seraph, an angel, flew at him with a hot coal and burned his lips, sort of cauterizing his lips. It's okay, Isaiah. I can make your unclean lips clean again. And he says, your guilt is taken away. And this is an amazing thing. And if you live with guilt, if if you've done something and you've lived with guilt, I just want to really point this out, is that as soon as the confession happens, forgiveness is granted. And it was completely granted. Isaiah is forgiven. As soon as he says, oh my gosh, now I realize how far I fall short, how sinful I truly am, God comes in, immediately says, all right, Now I've got a man I can work with. You are forgiven. Now let's get on with it. Let's get going. We've got stuff to do. And it's a great story, too, because what God says is, we've got work to do in Israel, and I need somebody that will step up. Who will I send? And Isaiah says, send me. Send me. There's no ego in this anymore. He's not thinking, oh, yeah, God and me, one and one, and, you know, I'll be powerful because I'm with God. He's just saying, God, if you need an assistant... That's me. I will assist you. I will do whatever you want me to do. And it's so great because God hasn't told him yet. God says, I have a mission. Who will I send? Isaiah says, send me. And then God says, all right. Well, do you want to hear about it? No, I don't care. Just send me. Now that I know who you are and I know who I am, just send me. And God says, okay, well, it's going to be really hard. You are going to be a prophet for 50 years and nobody's going to turn around. You are going to combat this new king coming in, and it's going to be ugly. You're going to write a bunch of stuff, and nobody's going to read it. It's going to be hard, Isaiah. And Isaiah says, it doesn't matter. It's not about my weight anymore. God, if that's what you want to do, if that's what gives you weight, I'm all over it. I will do it. And there's a great little verse that is said at the end of the passage, at the end of chapter 6, and let me just read this because this is kind of an encouraging thing to to leave you on. Uh, It says, uh, after he basically tells Isaiah it's going to be very difficult, he says, but as the terebinth and the oak leave stumps when they are cut down, in other words, what he's saying is it's sort of like you're going to be working in this desolate forest where everything's been cut down and nothing seems to be growing. He says, nope, but there will be one thing. So the holy seed will be the stump in the land. And it's sort of this picture. One of the trees, that's cut down. There's going to be a little sprout that comes out of it. And do you know what God is referring to there? He's referring to Jesus. That Isaiah, with the things that he says, with the prophecies that he makes, He will prepare the way for a holy one that will come and change everything. And it's an amazing thing to think that there is no prophet in the Old Testament that gives more prophecies about the Messiah coming than Isaiah. And there is no prophet that Jesus quotes more than Isaiah. And even though Isaiah did not see it in his lifetime, God had a plan, and here's what God said Isaiah, if you will focus on giving weight to me, I will focus on giving weight to you. You see, that's God's plan, is not that we establish our own weight, not that we push ourselves around and try to make ourselves bigger and better than anyone else, or that we try to make a name for ourselves. That's not God's way. His way is to say, listen, If you'll make a name for me, I'll take care of making a name for you. And I will do it in the most powerful, spectacular, uh, eternal way that you can imagine. And that's what happened to Isaiah. So let me ask you this question. This is what I want you to reflect on. Are you the kind of person that when things hit hard, you tend to go to one knee. And you tend to think, listen, if I can just get through this, if God will give me a little bit of help, I can get back up, and I can, I can move on. You know, I need a little help here. But, but in general, I've got it. I've got it. I've got it. Are you the kind of person, <coughs> am I the kind of person, that says, you know what, I'd like to think that it's all about God's weight, but really, if I'm honest, it's about my weight. Almost everything I do is to promote my agenda, to push me forward, to make things better for me. Almost every person I come in contact with, I'm really thinking, how can they help me? How can they move me forward? That's, that's kind of what's on my mind when I think about my profession, when I think about you know, the things that I do. It's, it's pretty much about me. It's about my weight. This is an opportunity today And not that it can be done once and for all, but this is an opportunity today to say, God, I don't want to live that way. I want to give you all the weight. I want to focus on uh, exalting you. on making you great of doing whatever it takes, whatever you tell me to do. I'll just do it. Next week, we're going to talk about that a little bit because next week, we're going to do kind of a vision week and talk about what our plans are for church and all these kinds of things. And we're going to kind of talk about what does God want us to do But really, the point this week is, would you do anything that he tells you to do? Would you just say, God, if if you want me to do it, I'll do it, because it's not about my weight. It's about your weight. What I want to do is just give you a moment to think about that. Whose weight are you living for? Do you go down onto two knees when you come before God? So bow your head if you would. And for you, it may even be a good thing for you to actually slip out of your seat and get down onto two knees if that just helps you uh, really cement this truth into you, to actually get into that position of being on two knees. And spend a minute just asking God to right-size himself give you the right perspective about who you are and to dedicate yourself to living for the one who carries all the weight.